0: Welcome to Palmsdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, October 24th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Well, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the 33-year-old man was dead, no doubt about it. He had no pulse. His body was taken away to be prepared for burial. The medical examiners placed him on a table to begin the autopsy. And the first incision was on the man's face, just below his lip. But as they cut, he began to bleed, which is strange because dead men don't bleed. And as that thought began to move through the coroner's mind, chaos suddenly ensued. I mean, the supposed dead man awoke in terror, flailing and screaming. Well, it seemed that someone had made a terrible mistake that day in 2007 by declaring Carlos Camejo dead after a traffic accident in Venezuela. That's him holding up his autopsy request form, and you can see the scar just below his lip where they started cutting him. Carlos uh, was a victim, or you might say fortunate recipient, depending how you look at it, of a rare phenomenon when people auto-resuscitate after being declared dead. It's called the Lazarus Syndrome, and it's only happened about three dozen times in recorded medical history. Camejo said that the, it was the pain from the procedure that woke him up. He, it was unbearable. He said, yeah, you start cutting into my face too, I would probably think it's unbearable as well. By the way, this Lazarus Syndrome also happened again in 2010 in India. Uh, Manas Deo is the man. He also had been declared dead after a car accident and woke up uh, after everyone thought he was gone. Well, welcome to the third week in our October sermon series entitled Undead. Resurrection and new life in the Bible. And today we get to focus on the second most famous resurrection story in the Bible, the story of Lazarus. Now, the Gospel of John is the only one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that actually record the story of Jesus and Lazarus. By the way, the name Lazarus literally means whom God helps, which is not a bad name if you're going to have, right? I'm the person whom God helps. Uh, now, I know that I preached on this passage, uh, John chapter 11, back in March when we were doing our Lenten series, Come and See. I was focused mainly on Jesus' relationship with, uh, with Martha and with Mary, but today I'm going to try to look at the entire story in a more balanced way as well. So, I invite you to open your Bibles with me. If you have them, take out your cell phone and follow along. We're going to be looking through the entire chapter, chapter 11 of John's gospel. There's a lot to cover today, and I would love for you to follow along with me. We're beginning at the very start, uh, verses 1 and 2, John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. So, Jesus was friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, uh, uh, two brothers, two sisters and a brother, and Jesus would stay at their house whenever he was in the area. Bethany means house of affliction. Again, maybe not a good place when you're settling uh, for, (laughs) looking for a new town to live in, but anyway, it was a small town just about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, the Gospels even record that Jesus stayed with Mary and Martha and Bethany uh, prior to and during his Passion Week, that last week of his life in Jerusalem. Now, the comment uh, in that uh, verse about Mary being the one that anointed Jesus' feet, well, this is John's version of foreshadowing because that story doesn't actually come until the next chapter, chapter 12. I guess he wants to keep you interested so you'll keep reading after chapter 11. Verse 3. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lutheran scholar Richard Lenski, in his insightful commentary of the interpretation of St. John's Gospel, makes a very interesting point. He notes that the message from the sisters doesn't include at all how sick Jesus, or, uh, Lazarus is. They don't say he's about to die, nor do they ask anything from him. They just leave it up to Jesus to decide what to do. We'll discover that this story has a lot to say about relationships. And right off the bat, we're informed that Jesus has a close relationship with Lazarus and also with Mary and Martha. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Not some random person that you've never met or someone that you only occasionally know. This is one of your close friends. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he he said, this illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, I think there's a difference between something being God's will, like um, uh, whether you say the tragic death of a young person would be God's will, or God being glorified through a situation. And when God is glorified, that means that the character and the identity of God will be made visible. So Jesus is saying, the character and identity of God will be made visible in this encounter that we're going to have with Lazarus. Verse 5 and 6. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. In the place where he was. It's a very interesting couple of verses, right? Dr. Olinsky mentions how uh, human nature would be for us to hurry as fast as humanly possible uh, to get to the person that is sick. But God's timing and our timing don't always sink, do they? Right? Anyone who's ever prayed that, Lord, please help me now prayer, and all of us have, I know we realize those prayers don't always get answered in the same time frame that we would like them to be answered. And John doesn't tell us why it was that Jesus stayed two days longer than departing. He just did. But it it says, no, 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 but he still loved them. He still loved them. Earlier in the gospel, Jesus and his mom Mary are at a wedding in Cana, and the wine runs out early in the celebrations. Uh, Back in Jesus' day, wedding celebrations would typically last about a week with lots of eating uh, and drinking and celebrating with, uh, with the new couple. Well, Mary mentions to Jesus that the wine has run out, and Jesus says to her, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. Meaning, there's an immediate need, and there's the bigger picture. And yes, the immediate need was they needed wine, but the bigger picture uh, is what Jesus was focusing on. This is what I've been called to do, and it's not yet my time. Evidently, Jesus had that same mind frame with this incident with Lazarus. He knew the immediate need was that he was very sick, but the bigger picture uh, was what Jesus had in mind and what he was trying to teach the disciples. Verse 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? By the way, in John's gospel, anytime you hear the word Jews, it usually means the Jewish leaders, not all Jews in general. Well, Jesus grew up in Galilee in the northern part of Israel. Jerusalem, the capital, was in Judea in the southern part. And remember, Bethany was just less than two miles away from Jerusalem. So the disciples are worried because they're referring to an incident that happened in John chapter 10, when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the festival of dedication, the precursor to the Hanukkah celebration. And the local religious leaders were so upset at what Jesus was saying and and claiming about his connection to God that they literally took up stones to try to kill him. So we're thinking maybe you might want to reconsider going back there, the disciples cautioned Jesus. Verse 11. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, uh, if he's fallen asleep he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring to merely sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to them. So last week, we uh, found out or heard that the word sleep is often a euphemism in Jesus's day for death, once again, though, the disciples are somewhat clueless uh, when it comes to Jesus. I mean, they know they're returning to a dangerous area, and they're like, if he's just sleeping, let's let him sleep. He'll wake up on our own, his own, and we'll just stay out of the drama. You could say that they had a grave misunderstanding about the situation, but that would be too corny, so just forget that I ever mentioned it. Jesus knows, though, that this encounter will lead to God's glory. Right Again, it will reveal God's character and identity. But it also will be an opportunity for his followers, the disciples, to grow in their own faith, which gives us heart, doesn't it? I mean, the people that were with Jesus every single day for three years of his ministry still often didn't get it. They still needed room for growth. So there's hope for us as well. Verse 16, Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, they may not completely understand what's happening and why Jesus is delayed and why he's going to be going now. They know it's dangerous return to the region. Nevertheless, Thomas, a la doubting Thomas' fame, boldly casts his lot in with Jesus. Let us go. We're all on this together, right? All for one and one for all. Frederick Buechner, in his book, The Hungering Dark, mentions that unlike some of the Eastern religions, Christianity actually takes death very seriously, which also means it takes life very seriously, meaning there's no, uh, there's no such... There's, I mean, there's a great urgency in living right, in, in, in living this life every day to the fullest, in, in doing what we feel God is calling and asking us to do. But in Christianity... If death is the end, it's not the final end. And Beegner says, it's the end of an act only, not the end of the entire drama. And although Thomas believes that they're about to walk into danger's way, Jesus knows uh, what they're going to encounter will have a whole lot more to do with life than it will with death. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Dennis Smith in his Storyteller's Companion to the Bible uh, commentary mentions that it was widely believed in the ancient world that the soul hovered near the body uh, upon death for up to three days before finally departing. It was said that when a human being dies, the soul remains two days without being judged and it travels around with an angel wherever it wants to go. But then on the third day, the angel takes the soul to heaven. So by John mentioning that Jesus missed the funeral by four days, we know that Lazarus is dead, dead. Like, no hopes of coming back because, you know, the Lazarus effect hadn't even been invented yet. That's coming a little later. Verse 20, and 20 to 22. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but But even now I know that God will give you whatever it is you ask of him. So Martha comes out to meet Jesus, her good friend, and the first words out of her mouth are, Lord, if you would have been here. And we totally can relate, right, and connect to her. Anyone who's lost someone they loved often uh, starts thinking about all the things that could have been done that might have made the situation turn out differently, including Why didn't God miraculously intervene? I mean, why did Jesus allow this to happen, Martha wonders, when he, of all people, could have saved his brother, her brother, and his good friend? Verse 23 and following, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, yes, I I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. So, Jesus and Martha have this wonderful conversation about resurrection, this belief that... Death is not the end, right? And that it was a relatively new uh, thinking in Judaism. It didn't really come into play until towards the end of the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. And, and the Pharisees, uh, uh, some of the religious leaders in Jesus' time, they also believed that at the end of time, God would raise up all souls. Some would go with God to eternity, the others would go to eternal damnation. Another group of leaders, though, the Sadducees, they disagreed, and they said, no, no, no. You only got one life. When you're dead, you're dead. That is it. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, God in Pain, teaching sermons on suffering, she talks about this exchange between Jesus and Martha, right? And Martha is thinking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know he's going to rise again at, at the end of time, right? This is resurrection is something that happens in the distant future. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection. This is something that happens right now. And and we hear this conversation and then we think we understand it, right? Oh, oh yeah, we understand what resurrection is, right? And and Barbara Brown Taylor says it's most of us were taught that if we accept Jesus as Lord, then we receive this, this coupon if you will, for eternal life. And then later on, when we need it, we just take it out of our wallet and we present it to the angel of death, and then we get entrance into the land of light and life. And in the meantime, all we have to do to secure our reward, to keep our coupon valid, is continue to believe in Jesus and act as if we actually do. That's basically our understanding of resurrection, right? But notice that Jesus doesn't say to Martha, I have the power to give resurrection and new life. No, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In Jesus's presence, resurrection and life become a reality. Those who connect with him will never die, no matter what happens to their bodies, so those who entrust themselves to Jesus begin their eternal lives right here and right now, and nothing can separate them from that truth. It's not a coupon for down the road," Jesus says, "Not at all. I am the resurrection and the life." And so Gail Orday says, "To be for Jesus, to be resurrection means that physical death has no power over believers. that our future is determined by our faith in Jesus not by our death. Verse 28. When Martha had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary got up quickly and went to him. Now, not everyone grieves the same way right? Martha proactively went out to meet Jesus. She engaged in a a deep and meaningful theological discussion with him, getting to the heart of the matter of what life and death truly are. Mary, on the other hand, well, she's a bit more reflective and introspective, and she has allowed herself to feel all of the emotions that come with losing a family member. And we'll see that Jesus meets Mary on her own terms and connects with her quite differently than the way he connected with Martha. Neither is the right way to grieve. Both are considered faithful responses to loss. Verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus... Saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. It's interesting that Mary says the exact same words that her sister Martha said to Jesus Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And yet, the way Mary says it it was so different, right? She's kneeling at his feet with tears streaming down her face. And the crowd that came with Mary would have been both friends and the professional mourners that we talked about last week, something that was very common in the ancient Near East. There was this deep sense of sorrow and grief all around. Verse 34, Jesus said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Biblical scholars will tell you that verses 33 to 35 are some of the most difficult verses to understand in the entire gospel. The New Revised Standard Version, which which we uh, have been reading this morning, says that Jesus was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Other translations say that Jesus groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Others say a great anger welled up within him. Here's how Barbara Brown Taylor sees it. She writes, Jesus wept, and it's my wild and subjective guess that his tears were for the whole world. Tears so full of anger and sadness that it was hard to tell where one left off and the other began. Tears for his friends, Martha and Mary, in their grief. Tears over the loss of his friend, Lazarus. Tears about the frailty of life and the random witness by which it was snuffed out. Tears that no one seemed to understand what he was all about, much less believe it. Tears over the enormity of what he had been given to do and how alone he was. It's all about the incarnation, right? And as John says in his very first chapter of his book, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, and, and the church has come to believe that Jesus was, yes, fully God, but also fully human, and if, if he's fully human, then he would feel and hurt and grieve just like each one of us. He wasn't just a, a human shape, but God on the inside. He was God and human all the way through. And Jesus is no stranger to, to human suffering. And not just here, but he also knows that his own uh, impending death is coming sooner than later. And aside from being the easiest verse to memorize in all of Scripture, because it's just two words, Jesus wept, it is also a verse that becomes a, a role model for us men who are afraid to show our emotions either in private or public. If Jesus wept, then so can we. And now we come to the part of the story that we've already heard, right, about the actual resurrection moment. Thank you to Sebastian that did an amazing job of reading it for us. But it's so good. Let's go through it again. Verse 38 and 39. Then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone." So tombs in Jesus' day were usually caves that were cut into limestone hillsides. Robert Brown, in his commentary, The Gospel According to John, mentions that uh, vertical tomb shafts were more common for private burial than for than horizontal cave tombs, and, and so they would have to have a stone that would cover the place that the body would be uh, slid in so that wild animals could not come in and uh, ravage the remains. Burial sites were usually outside the city limits, uh, limiting the possible contact of people with bodies, Uh, again, remembering the idea of uh, touching a, a dead body in Jewish culture made you ritually unclean for a certain number of days. And so they had all of the tombs outside of the city. Verse 39, again, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench he's been dead for four days jesus said to her did i not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of god so they took away the stone um i know what you said jesus says martha but you may want to rethink that stone moving thing i mean he has been dead four days the the king james version says that martha said he stinketh which is another great verse I think we should probably start memorizing to quote uh, around, because it fits many of us, even if we haven't died, right? But Jesus knowingly, lovingly, and gently reminds Martha, remember, this is about God's glory, right? God's character and God's identity are about to be revealed. 41b, So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I mean, I know that you always hear me, but I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you have sent me. Now, on the surface, it may seem like a little bit of a self-serving prayer, but the reality is most of the people there would not have been able to hear what Jesus was saying. What they would have noticed, though, was Jesus looking up to the heavens. And that was a universal symbol of prayer. So whether or not they heard what Jesus said, his actions made them think, ah, God is about to show up, or something connected to God is about to happen. Verse 43 and 44. When Jesus had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, his face wrapped in a cloth, and Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. I mean, what a powerful moment to have been one of the people gathered there, weeping with, with Mary and Martha, to see this dead man come walking out of a tomb, still wrapped head to toe in his grave clothes. Barbara Brown Taylor comments, Please note that everyone in this story is focused on preventing death, right? Lord, if only you would have been here. Jesus is focused on outliving it. He said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 5, Jesus said something that now is coming to pass. He said... Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. Very truly, I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and will come out. And ladies and gentlemen, when the dead come walking out of their tombs, the funeral party is over. So, there we have it. This amazing, incredible, uplifting, powerful, inspiring story of Lazarus, right? Undead, resurrection and new life. It's being played out right before us in this story. And what a powerful moment, both in Lazarus' life and in the lives of those who witness this breathtaking, or shall we say, breath-giving moment. And yet, there's always a few people who are more in touch with death than they are with life. And so our story is not quite over. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, And told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man has performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. Right? There's always going to be a few haters around, those who are focused more on death than the things that bring life, and they sent word to the religious leaders who were already upset with Jesus. Remember, just a chapter ago, they were trying to stone him to death when he was in the city. Now, it might be a little bit puzzling to us today. Why is it that the Romans would care who the Jews saw as their Messiah, right? And why would the Pharisees be worried about what the Romans thought about who their Messiah was? Well, the Holy Roman Empire was in control of the Middle East at that time, and their job was to keep the peace throughout all the territories. Well, the Pharisees were worried that if the people see Jesus as their Messiah— then they might rally around him and try to overthrow the Romans that were in their uh, country. And if that happens, then the Romans, of course, would lock down and destroy everything that that the Jews held dear. Because as everyone knows, when it came to the Roman army, no one had more resilience or matched their practical, tactical brilliance. So they were at a big disadvantage. Verse 49. But one of them Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it's better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. Now, he did not say this on his own, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. And so from that day on, they planned To put him to death. This is the turning point in the Jesus story. And never had more words been spoken in truth. But the high priest, Caiaphas, he really has no idea what he's saying, right? He's saying, we have to to assassinate Jesus so that people don't think he's the Messiah, and then uh, Rome comes and cracks down and, and destroys everything. So if we kill him, it will save our nation, But John says, no, 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 he's saying God is giving him these words to say because Jesus' death and resurrection will then bring new life to not just all of Israel, but to the entire world. It won't be an assassination, though. It'll be a life that is willingly laid down out of love. And so, with the religious death squad literally out to get him, Jesus now moves into the final phase of his life, his own passion and death. And how ironic, don't you think, that the giver of life now must die, precisely because he brought life in all its abundance to his good friend, Lazarus. I mean, this powerful chapter from Jesus' life and his ministry sees him basically trading his own life for the life of his friend, and ultimately his life will bring life to all, or his death will bring life to all. And that's how we're going to finish next week as we wrap up this series. But before we go, I just want to remind us of this. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Rome said in chapter 8, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's important that we understand this point, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, not even death. We're so worried about trying to prevent Our death and the death of loved ones, Jesus is focused on outliving it. What an amazing promise and an even more amazing gift, a gift that was available to Lazarus and to Carlos Camejo in Venezuela, but it's also available to you and to me. Let us never take that for granted. And all God's people said, amen.